You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanoch Teller. My dear listeners, I'm sorry to subject you to even more of the thorough evil of Chajamin El Husseini, who definitely qualifies in my list of the 10 worst people to have ever lived. Admittedly, he's not in the same league as Stalin, Hitler, Tsedong, or Pol Pot, but he's up there. The reason that I'm belaboring is because I'm offering fresh meat, material that's unfamiliar, and when Prime Minister Netanyahu tried to reveal it, he got himself condemned. I have less to fear. The following fascinating and diabolical information about the Grand Mufti's ties to Nazi Germany and Hitler are called from lengthy articles written by Wolfgang Schwanitz in German and by the Englishman Mark Goldberg. There are photographs in which the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem inspects the Sachsenhausen concentration camp along with Nazi senior officials and other government figures. The prisoners in the camp were Jews that were subjected to forced labor, terror, starvation, and violent torture. That characterized their typical day, every day of their short lives that they were able to survive in the concentration camp. The photographs also provide irrefutable proof that all of the men present in the pictures had precise knowledge of the fate of the Jews in Hitler's Germany and of likely the fate of Jews in their own home countries under Nazi rule. Hussein and his second Arab leader, Al-Khalaini, who toured the camps, continued their anti-Jewish and Islamic policies unimpeded at the end of the war, Al-Khalaini until 1965 and Al-Husseini until his death in 1974. Outside of Israel, Nazism had hardly been delegitimized in the Middle East, and its adherents often came to power after the war ended. The Iraqi Al-Khalaini staged a coup in Baghdad but failed. He was sentenced to death, then he was exiled to Beirut. Al-Husseini also found himself in Beirut, where he was active in the World Islamic Congress, which he founded in Jerusalem in 1931. He opened a branch in Berlin just one year later. Al-Husseini's Nazi contacts reflect a pragmatic interest in obtaining a strong foreign ally for Arab national goals. Others link the Mufti's enthusiasm for Nazi plans for a final solution to his additional desire to bring genocide to Palestine and the Middle East. SS chief Heinrich Himmler invited select Nazis and their Arab guests to visit his concentration camp system. They were given a two-hour tour of the camp, and they inspected captive Jews' information. The guests were excellently impressed by everything. The two Arabs each instructed two of their aides to join an SS training course, which included being in a concentration camp. Al-Khalaini wanted to go along to see if the system could be modeled for Iraq, where there was a large Jewish population. It was from the German expert on the Jews, Franz Rademacher, from whom the Mufti secured asylum in Syria after the war. Rademacher directed the deportation and killing of Serbian Jews in Belgrade. What is certain is that Al-Husseini rose to become the primary non-European aide and actives for Hitler's Middle East. Following the initial Nazi victories in North Africa, Hitler ordered Arabs trained in desert warfare to take part. Ern Rummel's army rolled into Egypt and was poised to invade Palestine and Iraq. Both Arabs signed a secret letter with Berlin and Rome for joint struggle until final victory and for the liquidation of the Jewish homeland 
in Palestine. To be clear, this always meant murdering Jews. This was a Palestine-oriented genocide pact for Jew-free Arab lands or, or empires signed by two Arab leaders and by the Axis foreign ministers. The Mufti arrived in Berlin and agreed on propaganda maneuvers. Hosseini used the 22 days, until he's going to actually meet with Hitler, to solicit from the Nazi leaders two commitments. Commitment one, the end of legal travel by Jews to the Middle East, and commitment two, the destruction of the Jewish homeland in Palestine. The Mufti's meetings over his 22 days in Berlin centered around declaring a Jewish homeland in Palestine illegal. Furthermore, they would recognize the right of Arabs, including those in Palestine, to solve the question of Jewish populations there in, quote, in the Arab national interest, in the same manner as the question has been resolved in the Axis countries. Rademacher's text stipulated the Jews were to be deported to Eastern Europe. Hitler and al-Husseini met for 95 minutes on Friday, November 28. In that meeting, Hitler revealed to al-Husseini his plan for the murder of Jews in Europe, the Middle East, and globally, and his desire to invade Iraq and Iran. Arabs were to call for revolts from Jerusalem to Baghdad to Calcutta, from governments in exile, and then proceed homeward with the Nazis. Hitler promised al-Husseini the annihilation of the Jews of the Middle East and globally. Hitler's meeting with al-Husseini was to install an all-Arabic Islamic leadership council in Berlin that would agree to his reordering of the Middle East. Then the evening after al-Husseini left, Hitler triggered the Wannsee Conference. Most likely, Hitler made his decision for the Wannsee Conference after his Friday meeting with al-Husseini. It is an undeniable historical fact that Hitler met with the Mufti in 1941. The final solution implementation commenced in 1942. For those not familiar, the Wannsee Conference took place on January 20th, 1942. In that meeting, there were Wannsee is a very, very posh suburb of Berlin. It takes place in a mansion. Inside are 15 second-tier, middle-tier German officials from the military, from the industrialists, from the civilians. And they sit around a table in the morning, sifting brandy, eating steak, and they have a break in the middle of the meeting to go outside in order to pet their dogs. That's how humane they are, as they plot the wholesale annihilation of world Jewry. Eichmann presented a list, and in that list he lists altogether over 11 million Jews in Europe, remarkably 200 in Albania. How in the world does Eichmann know there are 200 Jews in Albania? He was never there. He was in Israel. He traveled twice to Israel to be the king of the Jews. But how does he know there are 200 Jews in Albania? I've been all over the world, and I've never met an Albanian. But either Eichmann got a postcard or saw an almanac to 200 Jews, he will mobilize the entire German army to go to Albania to eliminate those 200 Jews, just like their Greek islands, which had four Jews. He brought the army there to annihilate those Jews in the islands. So in the Wannsee Conference, and I read through the minutes, there are no arguments at all. At one point, Eichmann brings to Heydrich's attention that on a train to a camp, they broke the roof of a, of a, of a car. Why did they do that? Because they wanted snow. Why did they want snow? Because they were starving. They wanted to drink. And the only argument was, how are you going to punish them when you're already giving them the greatest punishment that man can ever think of? So the plan of the Wannsee Conference was is that it was hard for the troops. Every day, the Einsatzgruppen, the special death units, four of them, 
each one headed by a doctorate in philosophy, no less. And these were not the riffraff of German society. These were architects, school superintendents, industrialists. There were four groups, and every day we would gather 30,000 Jews, make them dig large pits, anti-tank trenches, and then the Jews would have to fold their clothing, tie their shoes together, run to the pits where they were shot. But every single day for the Einsatz group, and shooting men, women, and children, and babies, hearing the babies cry and cry and cry, if you closed your eyes, they sounded like Aryan babies. And this was detrimental to the troops. So what they did was, and I'm making up this word, is they lubricated them. They gave them vodka and scotch and whiskey. And it's not an effective way to run an army if everyone is inebriated. So they need a better solution, and that's going to come in the Vanzi Conference. Because in the Vanzi Conference, what they're going to do is keep them in ghettos in conditions that are absolutely appalling. After the ghettos, then you'll send them to the extermination camps. And when they arrive in the camps, these are the Muslimmener. They don't look human, they don't smell human, and there's no compunction in murdering them. It's like scuffing, like destroying a toad or a frog. There's nothing, nothing at all that seems anything humane about this person. That was the great German genius of how to murder in the most efficient manner. And this is the plan that so much appeals to Al-Husseini and his colleague. Soon, Adolf Eichmann is explaining the final solution to the Mufti in his map room. In their planning and in their strategizing, Hitler and his guests follow patterns of the German-Ottoman jihadization of Islamism in World War I, inciting his erections and eliminating minorities that were seen as troublesome. Al-Husseini then offered Hitler revolts and his soldiers. Still, continuing Axis victories up until the Allied invasion of North Africa, which happens on November 8, 1942, encouraged Hitler's natural allies, Al-Khalani and Al-Husseini, to study the know-how of Nazi concentration camps. Al-Husseini sided with the Nazis for, for Germany, has at no time occupied or attacked any Arab Islamic territory. And it was the only country that sought to resolve the Jewish question in a, quote, principled and radical way. And he took that struggle up to the decisive manner long before 1933. Germany was the enemy of England, and England, of course, was the enemy of all Arab countries because they were the country which had granted the Balfour Declaration. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the key role of the Mufti in the Nazi plans to exterminate the Jews. Today, following the Israeli Prime Minister's controversial comment. Uh, Hitler didn't want to uh, exterminate the Jews at the time, he wanted to expel the Jews. Netanyahu said it was the former Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, who encouraged the Nazi dictator to kill Europe's Jews. And Hajj Amin al-Husseini went to Hitler and said, if you expel them, they'll all come here. So what should I do with them, he asked. He said, burn them. The Mufti and Al-Khalani created an all-Arab Islamist block to Jewish emigration to the Middle East. Jews could not save themselves there, where their ancestors had come from. Like the Nazis, the Arabs were interested in their own Jew-free countries and empires. According to the plans of Al-Husseini and Al-Khalani, Paris and London were even to pay reparations to Arab lands. The Mufti would later write in his Damascus memoirs, that claims that he visited a concentration camp where a, quote, smear propagated by Zionist leaders. Just like Hitler, truth had no meaning whatsoever to al-Husseini. 
Al Hussein's written pact with the Nazis and the pictures of his visit to the concentration camp and his subsequent close involvement with the final solution show beyond any doubt that the Palestinian leader wanted the Jews of the Middle East to share the same fate as the Jews of Europe. On the day of their meeting between Hitler and al-Husseini, Hitler explained the nature of the joint course in detail, and al-Husseini very enthusiastically agreed to it. Due to this photographic evidence, it seems that the last word should be given to Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal, who asserted that the Grand Mufti met Hitler several times and that the Mufti had visited a concentration camp as part of a group. I don't think it's fair to say he asserted. He, he really stated as a matter of fact. And we have all the photographic evidence to corroborate this. Inaccurate. There's no doubt that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was on the side of a Nazi in the war because he saw it as fulfilling uh, his aspirations against Britain and that Hitler had said that, you know, he would follow through on Arab nationalism and that the Zionist threat, as seen, the Jewish threat, would be destroyed by him. During the Second World War, the Nazis and Palestinian Arab leaders, Khajim al-Husseini, planned and executed a commando mission whose primary objective was killing Jews in the land of Israel. We're on to a whole new thing now. Not only is he plotting and assisting the Nazis by offering them soldiers, 20,000 soldiers who will join the SS, and approving of all their plans and speaking on Nazi radio, but he's also now going to be part of a mission to go to Israel to try and make Arab riots to destroy every Jew living in Palestine. Their plan was to incite Palestinian Arabs against Jews and to attack individual Jewish targets such as synagogues and Jewish-owned stores. The operation was codenamed Atlas, took place in October 1944. This is the story of an event that has been all but lost to history, but which cast important light on the global dimensions of Nazi war planning and the key role played by their willing accomplices. In December 1943, Lieutenant Kurt Wieland had, planned, had wanted to lead a commando mission to Palestine to incite the Arabs of Palestine against the Jews. He would later write that the military aim of the operation was to cause, quote, the greatest possible damage to the common enemies. Those are, of course, the Jews, English, Americans, and allies. Wieland was taken to the Adlan Hotel in Berlin to meet with the self-styled Grand Mufti, al-Husseini. Husseini was a Palestinian leader who had very good creds for the Nazis, for he was responsible for the deaths of so many Jews in the 1920s and 30s. He had a three-year insurrection against the British from 1936 to 1939, during which he was chased out of Palestine by the British army. After being forced from Palestine in 1937, the Mufti made his way to Berlin, where he was warmly welcomed and paid considerable sums of money by various Nazi ministries for work that included the propagation, probably the propaganda, and the recruitment of Himmler himself ordered that the Mufti receive one million Reichmarks. The Mufti asked Wieland to visit him in his residence, who introduced him to Abdul Latif and Hassan Ali Salama, the father of Ali Hassan Salama, the future Fatah security chief, better known as Abu Alai. These men met to accompany Wieland on the mission and the Mufti insisted that the operational control of the mission be handed over to Abba Alai as soon as they hit the ground. Wieland reluctantly agreed. Abu Alai, or maybe it's Abu Ali, was well known in Palestine among the Arabs and the British. He had proven to be a capable guerrilla leader during the 1936-1939 uprising and was popular among 
Arab-Palestinians. After the failure of the Arab disturbances in Palestine, Abu Ali fled to Iraq, where he participated in another uprising against the British in 1941. When that uprising failed, he fled to Turkey until summoned to Rome by the Mufti in 1942. A British intelligence report states of him that, quote, while in Rome this man lived in the Mufti's villa and was employed by the Mufti to look after his Arab soldiers. Abu Ali had the experience, the contacts, the knowledge, and the knowledge of the area to succeed in the operation aimed at recruiting and training local Arabs to kill Jews. The Mufti persuaded Wieland to take pistols and silencers and poison to assassinate Arab traders. He discouraged Wieland from taking large amounts of explosives, telling him instead to take a variety of detonators and claimed that he'd be able to get a hold of plenty of explosives, mater- explosive material in Palestine. Terrorists never seem to have a shortage of explosives. The Mufti also insisted they take large amounts of money and propaganda material. Twice Wieland went to the Mufti's residence to demonstrate the various submachine guns and grenades that planned to take to Palestine. He showed the Mufti British Sten guns and German machine gun pistols and grenades, which greatly impressed the Mufti. Abu Ali Wieland and a few others sat at the Mufti, sat with the Mufti, and meant to hammer out a written agreement on the formal objectives of the mission, which which was to cause the greatest possible damage to the Jews in order to avoid too early an interference by the British. The German leaders were to regard their task as accomplished if there was continual riots between the Arabs and the Jews. One more time, just to summarize, the plan was to parachute into Palestine and rile up the Arabs to attack all Jewish places of economy, synagogues. And we've seen before what happened in Hebron, how easy it is to rile up the Arabs. Just tell them a few lies, incite them, and then they'll go and riot and murder. And uh, the Jews are unprepared for this, and it should be an easy task. Once the arrangements were finalized, Operation Atlas was submitted to Himmler, the head of the SS, who gave his approval. At the beginning of September 1944, the members of the Atlas team, together with the Mufti, associated Nazi officers, and members of the Mufti's entourage, entourage, participated in a dinner party in the officers' mess in Wannsee, the very location where Nazis had formally decided on the final solution a year and a half earlier. Present at this dinner party was the head of the SD, General Walter Schellenberg, who made a speech, and here's a selection from that speech. I am delighted to meet the Mufti personally and sincerely hope that this mission will prove successful, and by this success the Arabs will fulfill their hopes of ridding themselves of the Jewish danger forever. I promise to continue the supply of arms and munitions to this mission despite the critical German position. I'm fully cognizant of the degree the Jews are playing in, the defeat, in, the defe- in defeating Germany. Should Germany come out of this safely from this war, she will once and, for all, once and for all take the opportunity of ridding herself of the Jewish problem and menace forever. Now, not only did, did this German general make a speech, but the Mufti also made a speech. And he spoke as if he was the leader of an Axis power. And he said, quote, The Arabs had long been fighting the Jews, and now the Germans had joined the struggle. The Germans and the Arabs had always understood each other, he said. He hoped that now all Arab nations would join in the struggle against the Jews and concluded the mission would contribute to a speedy and successful conclusion of the war. The Mufti interfered with 
the team's equipment that was to parachute into Palestine. He added propaganda leaflets, drugs, and poison. And he also had a briefcase filled with personal documents for delivery to his wife. Four of the five parachutists were caught by the British and interrogated. Initially, they all lied. Whelan finally confessed to everything that had happened in the planning and execution of the operation. Whelan also wrote that, quote, an example of sabotage activity was to be taken from former Arab guerrillas in Palestine, which meant, of course, incendiary bombs in Jewish shops, bombs in synagogues, etc., etc., etc. Whelan proved to be a goldmine of information for the British about the German intelligence setup, including information about Otto Skorenzi, the German special force commander who had rescued Mussolini from prison. Skorenzi would help train the Egyptian army under Nasser, advise the Perons in Argentina, and he was said by Whelan to be planning an audacious attack on the Haifa oil pi- pipeline. The Mufti's intention was to organize an anti-Jewish movement in all the Arabic world. In 1945, Yugoslavia sought to indict the Mufti as a war criminal for his role in recruiting 20,000 Muslim volunteers for the SS, who participated in the killing of Jews in Croatia and Hungary. But the Mufti fled to Cairo and later to Beirut and passed away in 1974. This is no idle threat. A British intelligence security summary from the February of 1945 refers to a second group of paratroopers who were dropped in Iraq. Quote, Interrogation of the one of the Iraqi parachutists seems to confirm that the object of their expedition was to organize armed bands which would attack Jews and Jewish interests in Iraq and Palestine. Abdul Latif claimed that the impetus for the operation had come from the Mufti in March 1944. Abu Ali was never caught by the British, but emerged as the commander of irregular forces during Israel's War of Independence. He was killed in June 1948 after being wounded in combat. But the war didn't end there for his family. Abu Ali's son, Ali Hassan Salama, better known as the Red Prince, became the leader of the militant Black September Group, responsible for terror attacks that included the murder of Israeli Olympic athletes in the Munich Games in 1972. He was assassinated by the Mossad in 1979 during Operation Wrath of God. And thank God we're finally done with Mufti Husseini. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 